As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am John McKenzie and I'm joined, as I often am, by my good pal and producer Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you? Well, John, I am often well as I am today. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing. I'm doing fine as well. Not least because we've got quite a fun episode to introduce to our listeners today. We were lucky enough to have Cal Goodall and Jack Elderton on the podcast. They are West Ham supporters who run a podcast called the West Ham Breakdown. But we were more interested in talking about the general concepts behind what a mid-table club should do in order to progress. So I think we've had plenty of conversation in that episode, which is really quite interesting. You've just listened to that conversation. What did you make of it? I mean, I thought it was fantastic. I think the larger conversation uh, about mid-table teams are kind of pointing out what do they need to do differently? Is it, is it an ownership thing? Is it a manager thing? And it's easy to point to teams like like Brighton, how, how they operate. But I think Jack and Cal kind of point towards maybe how Aston Villa are kind of the model here and how West Ham can look at Villa and, and maybe kind of copy them. And to be honest, I think the most fascinating conversation was whether David Moyes is that coach to maybe break them into the in the top six teams or so. Yeah, it's really fascinating because I think it's so easy to just assume that when a team gets to a certain level, they should necessarily kick on. And there's obviously a huge amount of different variables that come into play. Uh, And it could be the case, and I think Jack argues this quite well, that maybe... West Ham are a good example of a team have actually done fairly well as a mid-table team too. So plenty of really interesting conversations to listen to. And as always, the best way of doing that is by moving straight on into that conversation itself. So Jack... Callum, thank you so much for coming in today. It's great to have you here. Really looking forward to exploring what the idea of a mid-table club is and what the idea of progress that um, mid-table clubs should be aspiring to, particularly focusing on the perspective of West Ham. Let's start off with, I think, the, the, the sort of elephant in the room, which is the question of whether or not West Ham are a mid-table side, because on the basis of this season, you could say, isn't the whole question moot, because we are progressing, we are doing better than we were last season. So, Jack, we'll start with you. Are West Ham a mid-table side? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say so. I think when you look at the finances in the league, I'd say we're around the, the, the middle of the table, maybe slightly above dead centre, but but not much above mid-table. 
I'm guessing you would agree. Yeah, yeah, I think there's an obvious top seven. I don't think we're... I'd put us around ninth to twelfth is probably where I'd see us roughly in the sort of villa-ish areas. Obviously, they're also exceeding that at the minute, but yeah. in terms of the level of the club, I'd put us around there. So let's talk about West Ham this season. West Ham looked fine this season. They didn't look fine last season. What changed, Cal? Uh, well, <laughs> we went back to what we knew, I guess. I think last season felt in large parts like an experiment. Um, and I think it was an experiment necessitated by the fact that we had seemed to stagnate um, and therefore there was a push towards a more progressive, uh, exciting, attractive, whatever word you want to use, style of football. Um, but there was not really any evidence base to suggest that Moyes is the man to coach that. And I think we quickly realised, hence the struggles um, in the league. And then this season he's reverted back to the sort of more rigid defensive minded counter-attacking system and we've bought to bolster that in Kudus who very dynamic very quick very good on the break um, and sort of seen with the with the departure of Rice we've seen Suchek revert into that sort of more box crashy role rather than having to sit deeper to facilitate Rice's runs um, and I think when you add all that together it's meant that Moyes is able to coach what he is good at and has seen us go back to the similar positions that we were in when we first, when Moyes, well, the second time Moyes came in, but the first part of this tenure. Um. <laughs> I think an interesting uh, discussion to have about the difference between last season and this season is when you looked at the underlying numbers last season, I'm pretty sure West Ham were solidly mid-table. If you look at the underlying numbers this season, they're solidly mid-table, but the difference is 6th versus 16th or whatever it was in the end. Maybe we should talk a little bit about game state, but I would like to hear your thoughts, Jack, on why you think that what has happened has, has been a, a big swing one way or the other, which seems to be a, a swing which has taken place in terms of results rather than in terms of what the numbers suggest the performances have been um, reflecting. I think a large part of that is down to sort of attitude and approach on a game-by-game -game basis. And as Cal was describing, I think the idea last season is that we had to transition into something slightly different. And therefore, I think our approach to our in-possession play was to try and slow things down just a touch. I don't think it actually really transpired that much in the numbers because we gave up the ball probably too much anyway and didn't execute that particularly well. Um, so we ended up having sort of not massively contrasting passes per possession and, and stuff like that. But um, it definitely felt that the attitude of the team was to try and control games a little bit more with the ball and try and stabilise the game in the opponent's half and try and sustain periods of pressure. Whereas from the start this season, the, the attitude has been clear. We're going to be clinical from set pieces if we can be. We want to attack really quickly, dynamically on the break using players like Kudus, Antonio, Bowen, whoever's fit and having players like Ward-Prowse and Pakita facilitating that. And, and, a, and a big difference, I mean, the most obvious one is the one that Cal described is the role that Suchek played last season compared to this season and how they contrasted. You know, we had to balance to have someone more like Rice in forward areas last season so we could sustain that pressure because he had more quality on the ball. This season, it's gone back to being Suchek. I mean, he's not going to sustain you pressure by passing the ball around the box, but he is going to be a big guy in there who can maybe get you a goal or two just by arriving in the right spaces. So the whole attitude of the team and the way that we approach games with the ball has completely Completely shifted. We are going to move on to talk about the Moyes cycle um, later on in the podcast, but let's stick with the with the underlying numbers aspect right now because again, chat you and I had a conversation this week on Twitter uh, talking about the the underlying numbers because they are definitely skewed by 
um, a, a number of different things. But the the thing that I and I think you yourself before have naturally lighted on was was the concept of game state. Now, for the listeners, game state is anything about the game that can inf- influence the way that teams are playing. And the one we were talking about was um, score level game state so um, if a team is level the way that they're going to play is going to be different than if they're a goal up or goal down or however many goals up or down Uh, and the thing that I noticed looking at at the numbers this season is that West Ham are pretty good when the game state is level when when they're drawing they're 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 putting up more expected goals than they're conceding as soon as they're out of that level game state they get pretty bad in in every game state as as far as I could see this season Um, why do you think that is, and, and how do you think that's impacting the the position that they are on the, particularly on the expected goals tables? I think a, a large part of that is again down to the uh, approach of the team. The, the the team is geared towards getting ahead and then controlling games from that position, and then counterattacking and, and being clinical in those moments. I think when you look at the way that the team chases when it's behind, it's probably one of the weakest elements, if not the weakest element of the, of the team under David Moyes. Um, over the whole period, I would say is, you know, I definitely feel when I go to games, if we go one goal behind, it's kind of a wrap. Um, I mean, I, I think we can get back into games. It's not that we can't do that. And we have players that really do keep going till the end. And we have we find a way sometimes to get back into games and whether that's from a corner or whatever, we don't tend to dominate and create chances and really force teams into submitting by, by pushing the game back in our favour I think and then when you're looking at being ahead I mean we sit often quite deep once we're we're ahead we concede a lot of chances and the idea really is that those chances should be low quality and when West Ham are doing you know uh, executing David Moyes' style very well I think you see lots of low XG chances for the opposition and then maybe one or two high XG chances for for us Um, and when it's not going well you have games where we concede too many good opportunities, allow too many entries into the box, don't defend our box well enough, um, and then end up falling away in games where we should really be pushing on and maybe getting a second. And there's been plenty of examples of that this season already, I would I would say. Sheffield United, even, we're recording just after that, is a, probably another example of that. Yeah, how much does the play style come into it? Because obviously the way that Moyes is structuring his team, as you said, this season is to sit deep and then hit on the break. That means that you're going to generate fewer chances, but they're going to be, you would think, relatively higher quality chances than you would if you were trying to possess the ball and break down a low block. That means, I guess, that there's a lot more variability in in terms of finishing. If your finishing is off... Then and you miss you know one of your three good chances. It's very different to your finishing being off and missing one of your twenty mid chances. If you're if you're a different kind of team, so to what extent do you think that the the variability that we're talking about again season on season comes down to the fact that that whatever it is that David Moyes is trying to do is is based around that reduce the amount of chances that you're creating, but make sure they're good when you when you do. Yeah, I think I think that's what the entire system is built on, and the success depends entirely on it. I think we've seen it a lot, actually, too much. Um, but I think an obvious example uh, recently is is the cup game against Bristol City. They scored in the third minute, and all of a sudden the game is sort of we're not able to play it on our own terms, which I think is the whole. Yeah, the Moyes system needs to be played on his terms, and we've seen it before. Where I think by the very nature of the way we play it can cede control a bit because it's very easy for the opposition to work out how to play against us, if that makes sense. We saw it, I think there was a notable example maybe a season or two ago when it first started to look a bit pear-shaped when even a team as possession-dominant as Arsenal were quite happy to sit off and let us have the ball just because they knew that our in-possession play in terms of creating positional attacks rather than counter-attacks and limiting set-piece opportunities means that Moyes is too 
sharpest instruments so to speak in counters and set pieces were nullified and therefore they were quite happy to just let us have possession because the likelihood of us actually creating a high quality chance in open play was so much slimmer so it does it does create issues for sure um i think we are good at the defensive stuff in terms of like defending our box and we're quite consistent in the the way that we limit teams to having, I don't know, an average shot distance of outside the box, which is seems to be a hallmark of a Moyes system. Um, and I think even in those situations, like Jack alluded to earlier, where we concede one or two high XG chances a game, in someone like Ariola, I don't think there's any coincidence that we've brought in someone whose biggest strength is sort of reflex saves. It's that you can rely on him in those moments to make those sort of saves where you go, whoa, okay, how did he keep that out? And I think, again, that points to that variability because you're relying quite heavily on someone making saves that you wouldn't expect that many people to make. And eventually the numbers are going to level out. Like he might be preventing 0.2, 0.5 goals per 90 over a short period. But over the length of the season, it's unlikely that he's going to maintain that overperformance. So all of a sudden, the results are then going to plateau. And when you uh, combine that with the fact that someone like Bowen or someone like Kudus, who both of them, when they're on hot streaks, are great, they're outperforming their XG. As soon as you stop being able to put those high XG chances away and you start squandering finishes, which we've seen not to an extreme level, but recently with the introduction of Ings into the team because of injuries and stuff, there's chances that he is not taking that you would expect someone in the form of Kudos or Bowen to put away. And all of a sudden you see these sort of stumbling blocks come into play and the Moy system is sort of undone in mm. a sense. Yeah, interesting hearing you talk about the goalkeeper like that because I suppose if you're not trying to build up from the back, all you need to focus on with your goalkeeper is just someone who's a very good shot stopper and you get the, the benefit of that, right? Um, I listen to you guys on a podcast every week. It's called The West Ham Breakdown, is that right? Yeah. Um, now, this may be true of all podcasters who cover a football team, but it's, it seems as though you guys flip very, very uh, uh, ex extremely between games where you win when when everything's, when you're happy about everything. But then it, it seems at the moment when there's a loss or a, a, a disappointing result, very quickly you can hear the frustration in your in your voices. And I wondered, um, yeah, I wondered if that comes down to this variability that we're talking about um, that that seems to be uh, inherent to David Moyes' football. I think that is in part why, but I also I also think there's definitely a trend with with Moyes where you have repeating issues, and that leads to some of the frustration is that you you see the same game play out the same way so many times over so many seasons that it becomes quite frustrating to see that. And also there's there's huge disagreement within the fan base over how we play and, and whether the upsides are worth those issues that, that that come up, and then that also intensifies some of the frustration because. You know the debate ends up being quite circular over yeah we're going to have these games so many times a season where it's the same script we've seen it before we're going to struggle to break down a team that sits off and we're probably going to see the chance that we shouldn't and then end up drawing a game which we should probably win um but then we have so many games a season where you wouldn't expect us to win against maybe top six teams at home or teams around us in the league where we actually have a really good record of, of being a good counter-attacking team and picking up results so i think you know those two things together end up being quite a fr frustrating combination i don't think we would feel the same if we were right at the start of David Moyes but the further in the more the more frustrating those elements get yeah and I guess on top of that if there's repeatability in the mistakes then the frustration comes from the fact that you say well look it's the same mistakes they're they're constantly happening it's not it's not that we're faced with the manager here where we're unsure as to what the issues are we are sure what the issues are and and, and there doesn't seem as though there's anything being done about it right 
Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think a double element of frustration recently as well, we've seen the sort of squad be depended on more and more is the sort of issue behind the scenes as well of squad building and stuff like that, which has been a permanent frustration for West Ham fans for a long time, maybe less so now of the introduction of Steyn and stuff like that, but like not being able to rely on the squad players and the significant drop-off from the first eleven to the bench and then seeing those sort of mistakes intensified and then also player mistakes as well because they're not match sharp because they're not of the same level as as a Lucas Paquetar or something like that um, and I think as well I think there's a I think something we try to do is try, try and have a somewhat objective albeit maybe still emotional uh, approach to games post-match and sort of working out where the blame should be attributed because I think yes repeated mistakes obviously there is an element of a coaching issue but then there are moments in games where it's just like well what can Moyes do about that like some of the recent ones like Ben Rama's sending off it's like okay you can set up against a team and have these mistakes but if someone just lashes out and has a moment of ill discipline you can't really blame that on Moyes but I think it becomes it, they sort of contribute one another right and if the sentiment is already growing towards a frustration with Moyes it kind of can become an easy stick to beat Moyes with without the sort of nuances of the the different circumstances mm. so talking about West Ham being a mid-table side here um it seems as though we should maybe discuss the the money aspect here because uh, I was looking at transfer gross spending as you do in the Premier League over the last five years just I was looking at Liverpool actually because I was interested to see how much um, they'd been spending in terms of the the amount of outgoings they had um, and they were under West Ham in that time period so now obviously there's caveats about what Liverpool have been doing in in, in the transfer market in that period um, and they've obviously spent a lot this time around to to get their team back to where they were and they'd, they'd fallen off a little bit because of that but when you're talking about gross transfer spend of more than Liverpool in five years, surely that should change the expectation of what this, this club should achieve. And despite the fact that David Moyes seems to have you comfortably in mid-table, doesn't seem as though there's a huge amount of danger that you'll go down any one season. Um, but also doesn't seem as though there's a chance of you ever cementing your place towards the top end of the, of the table. Should fans of West Ham expect more on the basis of the, the amount of money that they spend in the market? I think I would challenge that somewhat. I would say that um, the, the circumstances last season impact the way that I assess it compared to the other ones. And I would say across the rest of the sample, I'd say we've been pretty consistently in that top eight region of the Premier League, which is where I would expect our spending to push us. So I think obviously you can't just remove one season from the sample and say without that, yes, I completely agree. But I think there are other things going on in that season that contribute to the, to the drop off that we saw. And then you also have to you know, put into into last season and say we didn't win a trophy and were very successful in, in the cup competitions um, that we were in. And actually that's been something that we've been good at across most of the period and I'm always been quite good in the in the in the cup competitions. So in terms of how I'm assessing what I want the club to do with the money that we spent, I want us to be competitive in the top seven, top eight region of the Premier League, challenge for, for European places and be a, a good cup team. I think that's what we've largely been across the whole period. So I'd have to say that you know, I think expect my expectations are being met at the moment. I'd say as well, I think, and it does actually point to an issue, a West Ham issue, but one, again, that is more of an off-field one. And when looking at Liverpool, I think one of the things that everyone would probably agree that Liverpool have done very well in recent years is they've sold well. They, they get good prices for their players. One thing that West Ham have done terribly 
is sell players. Um, we don't tend to turn a profit, or at least historically we haven't. Like I think of us spending whatever we did on Felipe Anderson and letting him go for a huge loss, and he's now being touted with moves away, maybe to even Juventus for figures in the region of fifty million pounds. And it's like, how can we slip up on that and let someone go? almost as a loss-cutting exercise, and then he just goes and kicks on. Um, similar with Skamaka. I mean, I, I think Skamaka is a great player. I think he'll do great things somewhere else. But it's that sort of misprofiling that has led to a poor investment. And then, again, we've sort of had to just cut our losses and go, well, better off to not have him sat on the bench because Moyes isn't going to use him. Um, so I think when you look at the sort of gross income stuff and the sort of revenue of transfers in and out, I think part of that is probably skewed in a way just by our ability to not sell our players for a good fee and also in some instances probably have to overpay in some instances as well to win that battle to make sure that a player comes to West Ham rather than somewhere else and I think on the flip side someone like Liverpool once they've entered a transfer battle a player will just go well I want to go to Liverpool so you can't really outbid them so it means that they can get their work done not on the cheap because they spend a lot of money but I would imagine if there was more of a battle for McAllister or someone like that a deal like that the fee would have gone a much higher but he obviously had his heart set on that move so you can't you can't enter the race at that point player development is obviously like an important part of being a sustainable club so Jack I'll throw that back to you how would you respond to to that aspect of of, of West Ham's transfer dealings if they're spending a lot of money and actually sort of burning through assets quite quickly because they're not raising the value. That, that that's, does become a long-term issue, right? It's the it's the worst thing about West Ham and has been for a very long time. Um, it's, it's the thing that we've consistently done very poorly. Uh, um, before before Moyes, during Pellegrini, with, with Bilic, it's, it's, it's always been very similar, really, uh, under the current ownership. It's, it, we, we spend a lot on, on players that we potentially like or have performed well in other leagues and we, we have high hopes for, but there's not necessarily been much thought to how they're going to play at West Ham or how you're going to integrate them or how you're going to build a system to, to help them to perform to their best level. And once we've realised that they don't fit in, we don't really place loans well for them. So there's not a situation where we find a good club for someone to go to, recapture their form and then sell them for the fee that they're worth. What we often do is just sell straight away at, um, at a massive loss or... Um, Felipe Anderson is the perfect example, really. We found a loan where he didn't play, the manager hated him, and his value plummeted. So I think we ended up selling him for 3 million euros, uh, which is just ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very clear to, to all West Ham fans that this has been the, the number one issue. What I would say is that um, there, there, there is some hope that that's moving in the right direction at the moment. I mean, even just Tilo Carer as a recent example is one that feels like maybe this is getting slightly better because that felt like another signing that was probably not quite right for West Ham, not the kind of centre-back that's going to thrive under David Moyes. Um, and he's gone to Monaco on loan, who are playing a back three. He's probably a, a player that's suited to playing in a back three. Um, if he can get back into the German national team, should that loan go well, um, which on paper I think I would have struggled to pick out a club that looks better for a player like Tilo Kerr at the moment. Um, then you might be able to recoup what, some of what you've spent. And yeah, hopefully with Stuyton, as, as Cal said, that might start to move in, in the right direction where it's been really poor for a long period. To what extent do you think the play style comes into this? Because I do think that in terms of the sort of quality of players that you have, you're playing a very different style of football to a lot of the other elite teams. Do you think that actually impacts the way that other elite teams view your players, therefore reducing the, the value of your assets? I'm not sure I would see it in that way. No, I think, I, I think because it predates... Um, Moyes, I think it's just that we've 
often signed poorly, regardless of how we we, we want to play. Um, and we've been probably more missed than hit. I think we've probably started to get that right. And if I was looking at the recruitment with the current style, and maybe I'd say that it benefits us more, actually, is we can make players that possibly wouldn't go for higher transfer fees or be valued so highly, make them look a lot better than they would be in, in other systems or at other clubs playing in a different side. I think of someone like Thomas Suchek quite like that, who potentially wouldn't have achieved the level that he has done anywhere else other than under a manager like David Moyes. So, um, yeah, I think, it, you know, as with any style, there's there's... Some players that are going to fit within it, and therefore their value are going to, is going to increase, and, and some players that, that aren't. And the, the the trick is to find the players that are that are going to increase in value and do well for you. Yeah, I think, and I think that kind of brings us back to what we were saying earlier about the experimental phase last season. I think the transfer dealings were also leaning towards that in terms of us approaching a season where it was like, okay, we need to try and play a bit more possession-based football. We're not going to get rid of Moyes, but what we will do is buy some players that have played in possession-based systems, namely Nefergerd playing in France, lovely on the ball, maybe not so dominant aerially, not really a box defender. Uh, Skamaka, borderline a six foot five false nine, loves to drop in, facilitate play, not going to be the primary outlet in an Antonio way where he's going to take the ball down, spin a player and run 30 yards, which a Moyes system kind of needed. Um, Tilo Kera, another prime example, a player that had come from a PSG side that dominate the league every season and doesn't really ever get found out for defensive mistakes because of the quality gap between those sides. And then you bring them all in and as soon as you have to revert to Moyes' preferred tactics because he's, it's found out that he can't coach possession-based football, you've then got a bunch of possession-comfortable players trying to be shoehorned into a counter-attacking side and I think that negatively affects their value in that respect. But I think the the main lesson is that, I mean, some would say you should never go full noise, but to be successful, I think you have to. I think the transfers have to go full noise because you really have to find the players that fit that system, like a Suchek. Um, I think Antonio, obviously, we didn't bring him in for noise, but that's been a, a perennial issue for us is finding Antonio number two because how many players are there out there that can do the role that Antonio does but unfortunately the system in the same way that it's built around high XG chances and not conceding high XG chances at the other end it's also built very strongly around certain individuals and I think Antonio for a long time has been the key player to, to the way that the system functions we've started to work out ways around that but it's meant that whenever Antonio has been injured which has been quite a lot over his time at West Ham everything kind of just goes a bit wrong because you're then trying to do like, oh, okay, Skamaka or Ings. Why why, why did we buy Ings? That's another example. It's like, just doesn't make sense in the system. Um, but I think, yeah, like you say, we've started to see a move in the direction of a more defined strategy and, and that can only be a good thing. Yeah, and at this point we should mention Tim Stein because I think this season you could make the argument that West Ham are already starting to make the sort of steps they need to make in order to progress as a mid-table team. Um, tell us a little bit about Tim Stein, what you've made of him in particular, Cal. Yeah, big fan. And I think it's been something that I've been yearning for for a long time. I think uh, if we talk about things that modern day clubs should have, I think a director of football that's kind of leading the approach um, throughout the club is, is one of the most fundamental things, I think. Um, and so to get someone in like him and also the recent... Um, rumours of bringing in uh, more technical staff uh, in terms of bringing in some people from Werder Bremen and I think Stadton's brother as well actually um, 
but yeah, I think a transition towards a more technical scouting balanced with the player scouting can only be a good thing. And I think as well, you kind of see it reflected. I mean, I guess it's a bit anecdotal, but even just in terms of the names that I see us linked with now, like West Ham have always, every transfer market, been linked with every player under the sun, usually the same players every window, someone like Nasiri or just like the, the names that everyone's been linked with. And now it's like, OK, West Ham linked to FC Norgelons, Ibrahim Osman. I'm like, OK, cool. That's the kind of name that I'm interested in. And I think that comes with the director of football. It's that sort of willingness to pass over responsibility and accept that there is actually someone more equipped at doing that than you. And I think for a long time, Sullivan probably struggled with that. I think there was a lot of ring up an agent and go, who have you got? We need a striker who's on your books kind of thing. And I think now he's kind of put his hands up and gone, you know what, well, let's start and do this. And I think one of the one of the teething problems that we've had is the, is the dynamic change like the difference in dynamic between Steiton as a sort of modern director of football and David Moyes who I guess represents I don't want to say the opposite of that but it's certainly there's there's certainly seemed a clash at the time and I think maybe there is that difficulty in the way that I can't imagine based on Steiton's clubs previously and the appointments he made I mean Xabi Alonso to Leverkusen was his his master stroke I guess and we've seen um, yeah that's paying dividends now I can't imagine that Moyes would be high on Steiton's list of managers were he to appoint in an empty role right now so I think they've been learning to to do that and I think it's that catch-22 where well Moyes is getting the results at the minute so we're not going to be able to pivot away from that so what do we get to make this system work and I think we've seen that in the in the business we've done recently and I think Kudus is probably the perfect example right and I think it's it's the it's the almost unicorn type players where like Kudus thrives in this David Moyes system because of his electric pace his counter-attacking ability but you could imagine if Moyes was to go and we were to move in that possession-based style Kudus could also thrive in that because he's technically very capable and I think that's the stuff is is like it's finding the players that could straddle both systems is is the difficult part but it seems like we are heading in that direction so Shabby Alonso to West Ham yeah, we, we, heard it, we heard it here first um, Cal mentioned the the, the narrative of the, of the sort of pushback between Moyes and Steyton and, and there was arguments I think that it took, took you guys a long time to get a lot of your signings through in the summer uh, off the back of the fact it sounded as though there was there was a pushback do you buy that narrative and and to what extent would you say that actually the success of this season in part comes down to the fact that Steyton was able to bring in players like Kudus who have really raised the level at West Ham honest answer is, is I don't know I don't know how much I buy into you know what we heard about what happened in the in the summer all I can really look at is what who came in and whether it's working and and from that point of view I'd, I'd have to say we, we probably found a quite nice balance between players like Kudus and then someone like James Ward-Prowse who you know it's perfect for, for Moyes in some senses having that set piece taken and we were always going to need one I mean I found the idea of Ward-Prowse kind of difficult because we were taking Aaron Cresswell out of the team and and putting his abilities in, in central midfield and it's sort of like how are you going to get around having someone that doesn't have Declan Rice's athleticism in, in the middle of the pitch creates other issues. But I, I would say we've managed to, to to find a good balance between the two and probably recruit well in order for us to be successful. Um, in terms of how much they, they got on or how much they agreed on over the course of the summer, who knows? It, the, the outcomes were, were quite positive. Yeah, it seems to me anyway that even within a football environment generally, it's good to have that pushback in, in different departments. You want your 
your your sporting director, your head, you know, your f- football, uh, your, your, yeah, your head director of football to be someone who is overseeing a bunch of people who are specialists in their area, and then is offering them the pushback that says, okay, you may be focusing too much on the short term. Let's 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 try and think about what the long term looks like. It seems like a completely healthy concept to to have that pushback there. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we move on to start talking about the sorts of things we think that West Ham should do to, to or what could even do to break into the elite group of Premier League teams, let's just talk a little bit about the Moyes cycle then, which is something we've alluded to through the first half hour of this podcast, but we've never actually explicitly um, laid it out. The Moyes cycle being this idea that that David Moyes has success when he's able to coach the team in the way that he, he, he wants to. And then the expectation is, oh, we've hit this level. We should now kick on to the next level. Um, they try that. They bring in players. It doesn't work out. And then there's a reversion back to, well, let's just sort it all out, play the football we know you can play, and then we'll go from there. Um, what do you make of that, Jack? And, and in, in in the wider picture of we're talking here about how do you get a team to progress, and it seems as though that cyclical nature of David Moyes is that is, is could sometimes be argued to be the thing that's holding West Ham back. Absolutely. Uh, to, to your point in the sort of second half of your question, yeah, we have to break out of that if we're gonna if we're gonna be successful over and, su- and sustain it over over a long period of time. Um, I I would say I've been on that journey as a fan of West Ham. You know, coming in not necessarily knowing how David Moyes plays and you know intimately and, and really I had a general sense, but not knowing it inside out. And and then over the course of the period, I, you know, we've been doing coverage of West Ham over the entire period and saying. 
we need to bring in a, a more capable, progressively capable centre back, and we need more, you know, more progressively capable fullbacks and a keeper who can help us play out from the back. And if we just do that, if we move on from Craig Dawson and <laughs> so on and so forth, we'll see a team that can not only be really good on the break but can also control games better. Um, and kind of all of that happened together, and we ended up seeing a team that would just didn't have either at the end of the day, and we, we've had to to revert. And I think. Yeah, as 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 we both sort of established, the way forward is to is to commit to what David Moyes does and to recruit well around that uh, and to stick to it, not not to continually sort of push against it and feel that you need to to develop and uh, and evolve. I, I suppose some of it is necessary at times. If you look at what happened to us sort of before um, players like Skamaka and Tilo Kara came in, we were struggling. We had stagnated. We'd ended up in a in a period of you know Lanzini came into the team to play number ten. Lanzini was trying to to sort of play more of a controlling role in the middle of the pitch than maybe we usually would have in in that position. And uh, we had lots of games at the back end of that season where we maybe had a little bit more of the ball, but just could not do anything to break teams down at all. Um, so I understand that sometimes you do need to pivot in a different direction in order just to get back to where you are, if you like what I mean, just to, to, to kind of um, stop teams from being so familiar with what you do that everyone's totally comfortable with how you need to play against West Ham to stop them from scoring goals. Um, but I think that has to be more creative than stepping back and saying, right, we're just going to be a progressive team and recruit a bunch of players that can play possession football because that's not going to work. You can't, and anyway, you can't transition to that in just one summer. You can't take a team that's played one way and has and is geared around playing that way and throw five players into it that can play a different way and just expect to be able to play a completely different style. Um, so yeah, I, my hope for West Ham going forward is that we stick to being a good counter-attacking team, recruit well around that, and actually just be creative about how we uh, engineer counters. That's always been my thing in terms of how to develop it, instead of looking at it and saying, right, well, we need to have more of the ball. Could we not also look at pressing slightly higher in certain games, changing the way that we defend in order to generate counters from more positive positions against teams that maybe aren't so secure in their build-up um, instead of trying to dominate the ball so much? And I think that would be a, something that I would really like to see develop over the course of the next couple of seasons if we were to stick with Moyes. Mm -hmm. I think following on from that, I've already mentioned that like when I listen to your podcast, that there is there can sometimes be frustration when the same old problems creep in. Um, but I think there's an aspect to which the part, part of the problem here is that the Moy cycle sort of breeds its own continuance, right? Insofar as you, you get to, when when things go well and you finish well, you're obviously not going to get rid of Moyes. But then the 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 injunction is for Moyes to change the style of play so that you can then step on to become of whatever the next level of football club is supposed to be, right? It doesn't go well and then you drop back and then there's no compunction to change the way that you're playing because you're like, well, let's go back to doing what David Moyes does well and then we won't get relegated. So you're moving between we should step up and then it's like, oh, we're a bit too nervous about about going down. And so the problem is, is that it seems to be no conditions within which the club might look at this and think now is the time for us to change. Um, what do you make of, of, of that aspect, Cal, insofar as it seems as though in, in each of those, in each swing of the David Moyes cycle, the best thing to do is to stick with David Moyes. Either, yeah, to say, well, let's go back to what we had before, or the other being, well, he's done well, so we can't get rid of him now. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, the paradox of West Ham, right? In its current state, it's like, yeah. If if we really were to move on from Moyes, I think you'd almost just need like a couple of twelfth place finishes season on season. But the variance, again, buzzword I guess, variance is that it's either one or the other. It's like either we finish and qualify for Europe or we have a really good cup run. Or if it's the flip side, it's like, okay, we're embroiled in a relegation battle, 
but Moyes is a safe pair of hands and he'll keep us up. So he's probably the best person for the job. Why take the risk? He's proven he's kept us up before. Last time we were in a rele relegation battle, we'd already sacked him. We brought him back in. He kept us up and thus the Moyes cycle started again. Um, so and, and I think it's because he's proven himself to be quite good at fighting those battles at both ends and we haven't really found ourselves in between at any point it is just one or the other that like you say it's kind of you either keep him because you think he represents the safest option when you're down at the bottom because change can be it can be bad like it doesn't necessarily always mean a good thing um and if you take the gamble and go down then you're kind of looking back going we probably should have just stuck with Moyes. he probably would have kept us up mm -hmm. And then invariably the next season, it's like, okay, well, now we're sixth, so we can't really move on because we're sixth. So it's, it's, it's um, yeah, it's a bit of a catch-22 that we find ourselves in. Isn't that just being a mid-table football team? This was going to be my, this <laughs> no. was going to be my next question because I was, I was saying it's easy for me to sit here and say, oh, obviously West Ham, a comfortable mid-table team, now they must want, you know, they, they should kick on. But, it, you know, that, that's like the David Moyes post-match comments where he's like, what we need to do is get better at defending and creating chances and scoring goals. It's, it's, it's easy for me to sit here and say that um, when the reality is actually the thing that maybe influences that is more is, is, is money and is, you know, making broad structural changes which it's very very hard to do we were talking before we started recording about Brighton a lot of people say well all you need to do to step up to the next level is be a team like Brighton as though that happened overnight as though it wasn't the, the fact that they're owned by someone who is a very smart man with a very smart business that, that runs these sorts of probabilistic models all the time to be able to help you get to the level he did most of it when they were in lower divisions so you can get that out of the way you get up into the Premier League and everything is set up in place in order for you to do that it's a very different kettle of fish to go into the Premier to go into the Premier League become a solid mid-table side and then say right we're going to now rip up the copybook and and become the next level smart team so I'm, I'm hyper aware as we as we move on to the final section here that I don't want to just come across as as being a sort of smug, <laughs> a, a, a smug analyst who's just like well you know all you need to do is just become a better team um, but I am interested to hear your thoughts on on what progress would look like for West Ham because I think equally with all that I've just said um, in mind, I think there is a lot of potential for West Ham to be one of those teams that is able to slowly uh, move itself up and, and start existing on the on the fringes of, uh, of European competition um, in a consistent way. Um, so let's start with that. Let's start with let's start with the owners. I think because I suppose the interesting the thing I'm interested to hear from you guys is: Do you think the the ownership at West Ham are risk, risk averse. It's something that I think people, that there's a sort of general consensus that that's the case. Would you agree with that, Jack? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think they are, but I think that's sensible. I think that's a really sensible approach given the given where the club is and, and what it can realistically do. And I I, I always approach that. And it, basically, what you were saying about Brighton, it's very different to come in at a club like Brighton and make big changes. But at West Ham it's not the same and Everton have the same problems I think you know clubs in that area it's really difficult to kind of to turn around and say well, actually what we're going to do is we're going to recruit a bunch of young guys it might be a bit difficult for a few years but we're going to have to sort of sell these guys on for profit fans of clubs like West Ham and Everton don't really want to do that they're not interested as much as they might say they want to do that they don't want to sell all the best players all the time make a profit and then invest maybe at a slightly higher level and build the club like that and I don't think you can start from the baseline West Ham are at and do that I'm, I'm not sure we've seen an example of that um so yeah i would say they're risk averse but i don't i wouldn't necessarily hold that against them yeah and i think that this is again the interesting aspect of most of the teams at the very top is that they can afford to make mistakes um when we're talking about 
clubs in the mid-table who should step up and they should do it by being smart and sustainable, they never get the opportunity to make mistakes because that drops them back down to the level they were before. Whereas we've seen with Manchester United, it's been over a decade now that they've made some fairly questionable decisions at, at points in the running of their club. But it doesn't matter because they have the, the money coming in, they have the fan base to be able to fall back on that. So I do think it's, it, it is worth saying from the outset that you know the teams who are in the top six are there because they generally because they have financial backing that most other teams can't uh, could, could only dream of. So um, we mentioned Brighton. We should maybe mention Aston Villa because I think if if West Ham are going to um, make that step up, it would look something like what whatever it is that, um, that Aston Villa are doing. With the caveat that Aston Villa have been good for a season, uh, half a season last season, half a season this season, there's no sense in which that would necessarily be sustainable. And that could be part of the problem, right? Is this idea that for, for mid-table clubs, there are there is always the possibility of stepping up for a few seasons. But as we said before, that depends on the players that you have. You have player cycles. As soon as you lose that and don't necessarily have a good crop coming through, you can you can lose it all again. So, yeah, Jack, I can see you've got something to say on this. But is is Aston Aston Villa the model that that West Ham should be looking to emulate in this? I think, like you said, it's very early for Aston Villa, and I think I would just describe this as you know, I, I look at the league in, in the sense that it's probably got two mini leagues at each end and one big one in the middle, mm. and and what you said about player cycles is the most important thing here recruitment is really hard in football getting recruitment right consistently is really hard and, and actually just not really possible it doesn't matter what area of the league you're in you're going to have years where you get it wrong if you can sustain your best players through those periods where you get it wrong and then build again on that group the next year it's completely different to having one bad year and losing your whole squad and I think that's what plays into a lot of that variance so Villa could do really well right now but if they have if they drop off for half a season like we did and then end up losing half of that squad because they all want to move on to, to bigger teams and that's when the teams in the top six come and pounce and steal all of your players, um, then it's really difficult to then build back on top of that and you're always having to build a new group all the time. You're working within very short cycles as opposed to being able to build slowly layers on, on, on layers. So, you know, I, I think it's more of a thing of, you know, let's see where Villa are in three seasons time, what group they have and then maybe they might be the model but I would not be surprised at all if a lot of those players get pinched by by bigger teams and then it depends whether they can get their recruitment right consistently over that period I was just going to say on that as well I think and I'm not a Villa fan and I don't I'm not going to pretend to know everything that goes on behind the scenes but what I would say is that like we say it's it's a very short sample size but also I don't look at where Villa are now and think that they've done it in a massively sustainable way like I can't imagine that appointing Gerard and the way that that went being the foundation laying process that they thought like I don't think that was the purposeful step to get to Emery I think it was something they did it went wrong and now they've done something and it's gone right and that's great but it doesn't it doesn't it's not the same in respects to like the Brighton stuff like we've said that's been done very sustainably they've also like the, the Coutinho deal like that was kind of crazy that didn't seem sustainable um, and I think maybe it's kind of all just stuck at this point. It's kind of all just gone right at the right time and we're seeing that play out. That doesn't mean that they can't sustain it because if they then use this platform to make correct decisions again, then they could sustain it. But it's, it's yeah, I just think it's worth mentioning that it's not been done in the sort of sustainable way because they've made a lot of mistakes on the way here. Yeah, it's very easy to retrofit what's happened and say clearly they know what they're doing when actually all that's happened is they got a few things right and, it, and it, everything has followed from there. 
I'd also say, I mean, we're comparing West Ham to a lot of clubs uh, around us in the league. What is there to say that West Ham aren't the model? What is there to say that those clubs shouldn't be comparing themselves against West Ham? West Ham have won the European trophy, have brought through um, academy players whilst doing it, probably not at the rate that you'd want, but have managed to get through one of the best in that, sell that player for a lot of money and therefore reinvest in, in the squad, have also probably brought bought in a lower end of the market and had success there. I think of Craig Dawson, Vladimir Sufal, Thomas Suchek, all really good examples um, of that. So as much as you know, there are reasons to compare West Ham to those clubs, I also think there are reasons for those clubs to compare themselves to, mm. to West Ham and say that West Ham have done some things really well that maybe they haven't. Yeah. Now, Callum, it's very clear that Jack is uh, fully in support of the West Ham risk aversion. Um, I've got a question here. Do you think that West Ham would be in a much different place right now if the ownership had been a little less risk averse? Is there a possible history across the last few years where West Ham had been a little bit more uh, gregarious in various markets, both players, coach markets, and we're actually having a completely different conversation about West Ham right now? Yeah, I don't know. I guess, like, if you look back, there are decisions that were made that I, if I was in charge, I guess, would have done differently. But I don't think it's about necessarily being more willing to take risks. I think it's just about being smarter. Like, I think they have actually taken risks. Like, Pellegrini was a risk. It failed. Mm. Bringing in players like Allaire, Anderson, spending big money on these players was a risk. That's, that's That doesn't scream risk aversion. It just screams bad business. And I think you could have made a much shrewder signing at half the price if you'd have been slightly more strategic in it rather than just going oh he's doing well let's chuck some money at him or likewise with managers bringing in managers with big pedigree but with no real understanding of a whether they'd want to stick around or b whether they'd be suited to the environment and I think one of the big things is the reason Moyes probably does work at the minute at West Ham is that you have to find someone who's willing to work under Sullivan's ownership and there's probably not many managers that are willing to do that um, and Moyes, Moyes is quite happy to sort of be the the, the spokesperson for that and manage that relationship well and, and I think the stability that comes with that is great but um, I think yeah I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I'd wish they'd been less risk averse but I would say that I'd wish that they'd been more willing to invest not just in the squad I think a big part of the success of talking about this sustainable model of building is that I mean our training facilities are like league one level it's like porter cabins and a few pretty bad pitches at Rush Green, right? Like that's been chronically underfunded for for years. Uh, similarly, the scouting department's been fairly antiquated as well for a long time since Steiton and, and the sort of direction we're heading in there. So there's signs, but like the off-field stuff, I don't get the sense that they're ever really going to be bothered about investing heavily in into that. And I think when you compare it to... I don't know, other examples, but I mean, maybe Leicester's not the best example because they got relegated. But do you know what I mean? The investment in the training stuff as well and the sort of stuff that comes with that. Um, I don't know if they necessarily see the value in that. And I think that's one of the biggest disappointments for me. Well, just just to qualify, when I'm thinking of that risk inversion, I'm, I'm more thinking about how they approach dealing with managers that are already in post and, and whether they move on to target something better or, or, or whether they stick and, and largely under Sullivan's ownership we've seen that I mean yeah. look, the grant's the perfect example right we were going down <laughs> it was really obvious we were going down and he still stayed until the end of the season like generally don't sack managers if they can avoid it and 
that is something that I'm not against. I'm, I'm not against that approach at all. I prefer that kind of stability. Um, but like Cal says, I, I, I would really like it if they invested more in the infrastructure around the club and built some sort of stability on that side as well, because we haven't necessarily had that. The other thing that we've mentioned, well, in, in terms of the clubs that we've mentioned so far as potential models or, or success stories, however we want to go with that, the thing that West Ham has over a lot of these clubs is that West Ham is a London club. You've mentioned already, Cal, that being a London club has an impact on your prospects as well. Um, what do you think that that looks like? Do you think that West Ham is, is you know, of, of all of the clubs that we're talking about in the Premier League, they, they are well set in terms of the, the, the geographical location, etc., to actually make that step up? Yeah, I think so. I think of all the sort of non-top, uh, well, I guess top seven now with Newcastle being thrown in there, um, I think we're probably best positioned to be the team that does crack into that top seven or create the top eight so to speak like the London stuff works in our favour but also in terms of revenue in terms of gate receipts and stuff we've got the stadium we fill the stadium regularly it's one of the biggest stadiums in the UK whether we like the stadium or not is a different question um, but I think the it is there like it, the 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 foundations are there in in that respect and I think when you think of the financial implications of breaking into the top seven as well with FFP being tied intrinsically to revenue and that's why the top six can establish themselves because their revenue streams are so much more dominant so they're allowed to lose more money which means they can take more risks because they can spend more money with less consequence. I think in respects of us and our revenue compared to that we're probably the best positioned to be able to do that but I still think the gap is incredibly large in 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 bridging that gap uh, and I mean this isn't a podcast to discuss FFP but it seems that the gap will continue to sort of stay in that respect. We do need to talk about the manager I want to caveat this by saying that I don't intend this to come across as obviously the the problem here is is David Moyes because I think you've done a really good job Jack in in saying there are huge upsides and benefits to what David Moyes is doing. There's the possibility to improve the game model that he has so that he's still playing that kind of football and, and getting you know progress in that respect. But I guess intrinsic to the concept of the Moyes cycle is that there does come a point in his time frame at West Ham where the club have said, great, now we can make the step upwards, which suggests that what they want to do is to make that step towards maybe a more uh, sustainably elite model of football. Um, so yeah and I think this is you know partly what we've been talking about at the beginning of this episode which was there does seem to be a lot of scope for big swings of variability in in David Moyes' football and if you really want to cement yourself at the top of the of the elite game you need to have consistency in in every phase of, of play pretty much so interested to hear your thoughts on what difference you think bringing a different manager would have at West Ham. I think it would obviously change things massively. I, I think I, I'm immediately struck by lots of questions, though, and um, and most of those are, are, are related to recruitment and, and how that would go. Um, I think it's a huge shift if you were to change the, the, the style, and you'd immediately probably have to move on quite a lot of the current squad uh, and replace them, and therefore how achievable is that, especially when we talk about the area of the league that West Ham operate in, and it not necessarily being the same as some other clubs who could recruit at maybe the lower end um, and work over time to build from 13th, 14th up, up, up the table. There'll be an expectation immediately challenging the top 
eight of um, area of the division. So, and I think a lot of those players that are, you know West Ham would want to bring in to play that style, also the top six, seven want them too. And so you're having to battle really hard for all of those players. Um, I think obviously it's it's possible. I'm not saying it's it, it's not. I just think. Um, my, my broader question is maybe just about what is success for West Ham and are West Ham being successful within what's possible for West Ham? And is that sort of obsession with taking the next step actually that productive for, for, for West Ham? Is it that useful a conversation? And I have a lot of questions over, over that. To push you back on that then, assuming that the language spoken about this progress isn't we need to become an elite side playing elite football. Do you think there are managers you could bring in to maybe be a more sustainable mid-table club from a tactical point of view? Um, possibly, but I look at Leicester as a really good example of what can go wrong there. Yeah. And um, and actually, again, we talk about the Moy cycle. Like, I think there's upside in the fact that you don't go down. <laughs> so I understand that there's maybe greater upside in terms of sustainability in the top eight region of the league playing a different style, but there's greater upside and possibly bigger upside in my view to probably never going down under a manager like David Moyes and that's that you know that's where you adjust your risk level right it's whether you go for that and try and sustain your position in the top eight region of the league you never have those sort of bust moments in in, in your cycle and you're going to be able to, to to cement yourself as part of that that group or whether you look at it and say we can pretty safely say we're not going to get relegated with this manager we're going to be competitive in cup competitions and we can regularly challenge in that part of the league you know one is maybe slightly less risky than the, than the other but has maybe uh, lower upside and one is more risky and maybe has higher upside I'm personally of the view with West Ham as it has been in my lifetime and it's probably worth saying that as well because older West Ham fans might have a slightly different view having seen different a different side of the club maybe in the 80s in my lifetime before this period West Ham were generally pretty rubbish for the entire period like, I've never really seen us be very good so I'm happy with this. I don't really want to see us not under the current ownership model to push beyond this because I don't know re whether we actually have that sort of continuity of thought and leadership to be able to properly do that and, and, and to do it well. Yeah, I'll let you have a say on this, Cal, as well, because before we started recording, you described yourself probably slightly towards the centre of the spectrum on Moyes, whereas, whereas you're saying Jack was a bit more towards the pro end of the spectrum on that. So what's your, your take on this? Yeah, I think uh, I think yeah, Jack's position is is obviously a strong one in terms of the most important thing for a Premier League club is probably to stay in the Premier League because if you go down it can be really traumatic. Like we've seen teams um like Charlton, they were fourth in the Prem at one point. Now they're struggling to get out of League 1 because of it was some 20 years ago this week it was. Yeah, well, yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So some ill-advised decisions were made and I think they you then get stuck in or there's a risk of getting stuck in a sort of death spiral where you're then like oh well we need to spend more to get out of this situation and then that goes wrong and then you're in even dire straits so I do get that I think without wanting to make it an even more <laughs> like a more philosophical discussion I think it it can and I think part of the issue with uh, within the West Ham fan base is that it's the sort of relationship between results and entertainment and I think a lot of fans go to the stadium and watch the game and I probably consider myself to be in this uh, category somewhat is that you go and because of the very nature of Moyes football in the sense that the football itself is risk averse I guess it's like it's, it's built around that it can be 
kind of stale to watch. It's not really exciting to watch at times. There's the flip side of that, which is like the Leon results where we play an absolutely blinding counter-attack and it's incredibly fun. But a lot of the times you're just soaking up waves of pressure and it kind of feels like you're going to watch the other team instead of watching West Ham. And I get that. And I think in that respect, bringing in someone that can sort of ignite the fan base a bit more and get them playing a sort of more swashbuckling, entertaining, attractive style of football, there's definitely merit to that. But I think it's finding that sort of middle ground of okay well where can we get the safety with the with the attractiveness and i think there's uh, there's a few managers i mean i think paulo fonseca is doing great things over in france and um he's he's been linked to the west ham role before and i think he more than anyone without like taking a punt on some Austrian Bundesliga coach that I mean the risk involved in that is insane um, <laughs> certainly when it comes to aesthetics yeah, as well. yeah exactly um, but yeah like Fonseca in terms of representing someone who has done it at this level and yeah I think he maybe for me if I was going to posit a name would be the guy um, but yeah I think as well there's inherent risks that come with that is that if you if you appoint a manager that plays that style of football you then have to brace yourselves for the eventual departure when a bigger club in Europe with Champions League football poaches them a la Potter and that obviously didn't work but I think we're all anticipating De Zerbi will probably eventually leave Brighton for a big job as well and then you have to deal with that cycle and Brighton are great at dealing with that because they have the infrastructure but West Ham don't and I think with David Moyes is anyone going to come in and steal him? Probably not. So then you get the stability. And I think, as Jack rightly flagged up, in the current ownership model, I think Moyes probably is the safest option because no one's he's not going to leave and we're not going to go down and everything's fine. <laughs> I can see you've got something to say, Jack. <laughs> I'm going to throw this question to you and, and allow you then to answer through this question because I've got a list of coaches here, Premier League teams have brought in recently. So we've just mentioned Roberto De Zerbi. Uh, Unai Emery, we mentioned at, uh, at Aston Villa, and then Andoni Areola at Bournemouth. What do you make of it when other teams do that? Do you, do you not get a little bit envious? Yeah, of course I do. Yeah, absolutely. Especially as someone who has to watch the team several times every week, not just the once. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, of course I do. Um, yeah, you, you do want to see a team that's perhaps more tactically interesting and has... Um, other strings to its bow other than just being really good at counter-attacks and, and, and set pieces and, and Carl's not wrong there are parts of that that can be dull at times I suppose what I would say in response to that is that one thing I do like about what we do under Moise is that it, it is all about providing a platform for players that are genuinely really exciting to watch and um, yeah maybe watching the platform being built isn't the most fun thing in the world but then watching players like Pakatar and, and, and Kudus and, and Bowen thrive is quite exciting we've scored mm -hmm. quite a lot of goals this season you know it's not that we're Winning games 1-0 and, and that's it. Um, we, we are, I, I think we are a more exciting um, team to, to watch than that. Of course, yes, there are other managers that I would love to, to see at West Ham. It's just, I know it's really boring and it's probably not what, what fans want to, want to hear, but just within the current set of conditions. And also, you know, we're describing them as a safe pair of hands. Again, I'm going to sound incredibly pro always saying this, and it's funny because I'm actually not really in the context <laughs> of the fan base. Um, I think I'm, I'm pretty close to Cal in terms of saying that there's a lot that needs to be improved upon and this is not where it needs to be and that's always the case I don't th I think that's the case with almost any manager unless they're pep there's always things that you look at and say this isn't good enough and you can Im improve on this um, but 
I think he's more than a safe pair of hands. I think he's a successful pair of hands. And the fact that he's not going to go somewhere else, the fact that he's happy here, the fact that we have been moving in the right direction whilst he has been here. Um, what more do I want? I want the team to be challenging for Europe. I want the team to be challenging in the cup competitions. I want the team to be moving in the right direction in terms of its infrastructure, bringing in a director of football, bringing in scouts. And um, I want the academy to be getting better. We've done all of those things. We even won the, the Youth FA Cup last season. Like I, I, I think everything that I want as a, as a fan of West Ham has happened or is happening. Um, save for maybe sitting there and going, yeah, I'd love us to win the Premier League or, or, or get into the Champions League. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's a dream. I don't think that's necessarily something that is going to, as we're describing, sustainably mm. happen. Um, yeah, you just need to win the Europa League this season, right? That's easy. <laughs> um, and yeah, having been sat behind the goal at Brentford when could have scored that goal, you know, I guess you pick your, you pick your battles, right? You, 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 get, you have to find your enjoyment where it comes as a football fan and there's an intrinsic aspect of football fandom that is you don't really get much of a say over how this happens. You, you, you have to find it when it comes. But um, Jack, you've made a few comments about the, the broader structures of the club and, and a lot of the things that you're saying are caveated by given that we have the current um, structure of ownership, etc. Um, do you think that there's no point even talking about West Ham progressing in the ways that we've been talking about in these sort of big picture ways of sweeping changes without having a different ownership structure or, or, or structure at the club um, in terms of like the, the hierarchies and stuff yeah I do think that I think I think that's the case I think you would you would need to have um, stronger leadership better leadership and um, and ideas that come from the, the top of the club and bleed through the rest of the club rather than um, I, I think what we, we we might be doing well right now and I think would probably deserve credit for what they've done over over the last few years because we found a way to make it work with who we have um but I, I, there's too much uh room for people inserting themselves into the decision making process that probably don't have the expertise to be in that decision making process um and not enough ambition with regards to the off-field stuff um for that kind of transition to actually realistically happen in the way that we're we're theorizing so yeah i don't think there is much value in in, in the conversation really <laughs> I have thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you both today about this topic I think um, you've, you've given a really good defence of, of, of West Ham um, let's end with one question just about the future um, we'll start with you Cal what do you think that the future looks like for West Ham what are we going to see do you think we're going to see West Ham progress in the next five years and what do you think that that's going to look like yeah, I think we're heading in the right direction. I think there's a certain level of irony in fans sort of in their pursuit of a new manager saying, oh, we want a project manager or like everyone wants a project manager. Everyone wants like the Potter or the, that sort of thing. But like if you zoom out and look at Moyes, is that's kind of been a project management, right? Like he's taken us from basically almost being relegated to the championship, stabilising the club, fixing things off field, fixing the toxic dressing room, getting the fans to buy into it uh, not the fans sorry the players to buy into it crucially not the fans uh, and yeah I think like okay like for 90 minutes on a Saturday it might be nice to watch a team pass the ball around a bit more than Moyes does but also for that evening in Prague where we 
won the cup like that is far more valuable in my opinion like i'll never forget that so i think that carries much more value um but in terms of progress i think it is a tricky question like i think because it brings us right back around to that variance right it's like if i was going to be honest about what i think west ham will look like over the next five years i think we'll probably have another season like last season at some point where we're fighting down in in the bottom like half of the table just because that's inevitably the way it goes but I think we'll also we'll also kick on and have a few of these and I and I wouldn't be surprised if this season we give a good go of it in the Europa League as well I know there's some big teams in there but also <laughs> Moises teams seem to come alive against those big clubs I would say um, that's probably my honest appraisal but if I was going to say what I would like then I would hope that in the next five years we probably have moved on from Moyes, to be to be perfectly blunt. I think, like you said, Jack, you've given a good reason as to why Moyes is, is the right candidate. But I think if I watch another five years of it, I may become beyond the point of board. <laughs> <laughs> Jack? Um, I think you'll probably get your wish. Uh, I've been incredibly optimistic about Moyes throughout this podcast, and, and here comes a dose of pessimism. But I think the, the club would pull that trigger if, a, if another season like last season happened and I think one will and I With think Stighton in, in charge as well presumably that changes things right? it, it, it does it does um, and then at the point that that happens I don't know I don't know what it looks like because it depends on how much more progress has been made with regards to the off-field stuff, whether we've got a better structure in place to support um, a different kind of manager coming in. So um, it's really difficult to say. Um, what I hope happens more than anything is that we make um, the best out of the group of young players that we have right now. Um, I think we've got a really nice squad um, of senior players that are doing uh, really well on the pitch for us at the moment. Um, and I, I hope we can we can sort of continue to push uh, and be in the European conversation and, and hopefully sustain European football um, across the period. I think that's unlikely, but if we can have it as often as possible, then that's a good thing. Uh, but beyond that, my, my biggest thing is that the group of young players we have right now all go on to have good careers, whether that's at West Ham or not. Um, I don't mind. I'd like it if it was at West Ham. Of course, I want them all to be playing in the first team if they if they could be. But I really hope they're managed well and will go on to have good careers in the in the football league and and hopefully get good opportunities to to play senior football over the next couple of years. Because I think that's such a a good indication of a mid table club doing things well is when you can bring through a crop of of, of local young players and, and and push them on to to good careers in the game. So that would be my biggest hope. Well, Jack Elderton, Cal Goodall, it's been great having you both on. I think you're both brilliant, and I think that manifests itself in that I watch, I listen to your podcast every week, a, a podcast about West Ham. I never thought the day would come. <laughs> that podcast is called The West Ham Breakdown. Uh, you both also put out content on a media outlet called Analytics United, which is at analyticsutd underscore on Twitter. Jack, you're at Jack Elderton, and Cal, you're at WHU underscore analytics. Thank you both for coming on. It's been great. Pleasure. Thank Thanks you. for having us.